Well, since you are, if you're following along with our reading plan, you're reading in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be preaching from the Gospel of Matthew. So we're, we're preaching out of uh, Matthew 7, verses 13 through 27. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So what if I told you that the Bible is not really a a book about how to get to heaven? I mean, this is how we treat it a lot of the time, right? Like it's a guidebook from point A to point B, how to get from here to there. But if you'll pay close attention when you read passages like this one especially, you'll see they don't really talk about heaven or hell all that much. What they do talk about is life and death, blessing and curse. In this case, the way to life and the way to destruction. And the implication is that God is actually very deeply concerned about what we do here and now, and and we therefore should be very focused on what it means to live faithfully right now because we'll receive the reward for our faith and the reward of faithlessness now. There is a sense in which heaven and hell begin long before you die. And as we go deeper into the Bible this year, it's vital for us to understand what it has to say about the way we live our lives right here, right now. And so we're going to start off this week with the very basics. 
how to build a foundation. So I, I'm an NBA fan. I, I grew up watching basketball, and I grew up watching the San Antonio Spurs because I'm a good person. <laughs> I like the same teams Jesus likes. So, <laughs> so that means I, I grew up watching Tim Duncan play. He's my, my favorite. The, the only athlete whose jersey I have is Tim Duncan. Um, and, and when he was playing, you know, he, he got the nickname from the other players in the NBA. They called him the Big Fundamental, which sounds like the most boring nickname of all time, right? Um, but that boring nickname is actually the reason why he had an unparalleled amount of success in the NBA. And I mean unparalleled. There is no player in the modern league who has had as much success as he has. Not Michael Jordan, not Kobe Bryant, not LeBron James. None of them can claim as much consistent success as he has. Five NBA championships, two MVP awards, five finals MVP awards, which means every time he played in the finals, he was the MVP. 15 NBA All-Star appearances, and he made the playoffs in all 20 seasons that he played. More than that, he was actually good every season he played, right? Kobe Bryant can't say that. Uh, LeBron James can't say it right now. But a lot of people thought he was boring, right? He wasn't a flashy player. If you ever watched him play, you, you might have noticed if you ever watched, watched him like in his prime, the things he was doing when he played, like he did the same things that your kids' coaches teach them when they're in elementary school. I mean, literally, there's nothing he did on the court that they don't teach at like summer basketball camp for 10-year-olds. His game was that simple. And so he wasn't a flashy player. He, he didn't get emotional on the court. He stayed level-headed throughout the whole game. He was very easygoing. In fact, there are stories from other NBA players of the time who said you would try to trash talk him and get in his head, and it wouldn't work. He'd just stare you down until you shut up, and then he'd keep playing. <laughs> so the way he plays, is, it's simple and efficient. And, and it's true that compared to a lot of the other players he, he was playing with at the time and a lot of the players who are still playing now, he might have actually been kind of boring, but he routinely beat all those players over and over again. He beat LeBron James in the NBA Finals twice. And the second time he did it, by every metric that we have to measure performance in basketball, it was the most dominant NBA Finals in history. And he did it while nearly 40 years old, which is way past retirement age for a basketball player, while LeBron was in his prime. And so the, the key to his success and his consistent long-term success, it wasn't unusual athleticism, it wasn't raw talent, it wasn't emotion. It wasn't any of those things. It, it was unerring perfection in the fundamentals of the game. He was never out of position. He never failed to spot the open pass. He never passed up the easy, simple shot. He was always in the spot to grab the rebound. And so that meant he'd outscore you, he'd outrebound you, he'd block your shot, and then he'd thoroughly beat you even when he's twice your age. His mastery of the simple fundamentals of the game, literally of the things they teach children who are just learning to play the game. That, that is what made him so successful. Even at the highest level. So that brings us back to this passage from Matthew, the fundamentals of our faith, the simple thing that will make us successful in every aspect of our faith. 
So this, this part of Matthew, this is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is preaching to this big crowd. He's, he lays out these really radical, actually, requirements for his disciples, ones that we, we should do a lot of work in studying, and we will because he repeats this in the other Gospels. But this ending section here is all about contrasting genuine discipleship with false discipleship. And the clear point that he's making is genuine disciples are known not by what they say, not even by what they believe, but by what they do. And true discipleship is marked by difficult and costly choices. It's not the easy path. And so he uses this very classic Jewish idea of life and death, right? You're choosing life or you're choosing death. It's uh, actually a callback to the book of Deuteronomy as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. Moses tells the people of Israel today, I lay before you blessing and curse, life and death, and the choice is yours. It's a theme that repeats all throughout the Old Testament. You can choose life or you can choose death, but these are the options. And that's how Jesus lays it out for his listeners now. If you've never had to make a difficult choice because of your faith, it might be worth taking a moment to think about your discipleship and how genuine it might be. And I don't mean that being a true disciple means that you have to constantly be a contrarian or that you have to like, make yourself an outsider in every situation or that you have to go out of your way to make your life more difficult. That's not it at all. But it does mean that you maybe should have a difficult time feeling at home in the world we live in. To use the example I always go to, if you find yourself in complete and total agreement with one political party, something has gone horribly wrong. If you can scroll through a party platform and not find anything on there with which you disagree, you've got a problem. That doesn't mean you can't have party loyalty. It doesn't mean you can't favor one over the other. But it does mean you should be able to at least recognize where their values diverge from the gospel. It's not, it's not just that the gospel is countercultural. The gospel challenges every earthly ideology, and it challenges a lot of the world's most dearly held values. And sometimes it causes great offense when it does so. If you've never felt like following Jesus came with a cost, you might have a problem. And the world is full of people who, who claim to follow Jesus but who aren't willing to pay the price and they aren't willing to go against the grain and the result is that they miss the narrow gate. And so then Jesus warns them about false prophets, right? false teachers. But, but this little passage, I think it applies actually to all people who would claim to follow Jesus. The test is you'll know them by their fruits. Not, you'll know them by what they teach. I mean, doctrine is important, but, but you can believe and teach correct doctrine and theology without being a real follower of Jesus. We don't have to look very hard to find some horrific examples of that. The most recent one is Ravi Zacharias, the great Christian apologist, who after his death, we found out he was one of the worst sexual predators in living memory. But his books are great. I mean, his theology that he wrote in his books, the things he said in his talks, all spot on. But inside, he was rotten. 
Most examples aren't that extreme, right? They'll be a lot more mundane. I mean, think of, uh, without naming any names in here, right? Think of the number of churchgoers who mistreat the waiter at the restaurant after church on Sunday. Because if you've never worked in the restaurant industry, I can tell you that's a thing. Waiters dread the Sunday lunch shift. What about the, the business owner who's in church every Sunday but doesn't pay their employees a living wage? I have personally witnessed two people, both married, who were having an affair with each other while they and their families attended the same church. But by God, they were there every Sunday. Their kids were at every youth event, and now that I think about it, that might not have been a good thing because who knows what they were doing while their kids were at church. But their kids were involved. They were there all the time. They were big supporters. They took their pastor out to lunch all the time. And so we should be a little worried that we might fall into that category of the people who might hear from Jesus, depart from me for I never knew you. When he says that, he precedes it. But many people will, will say to me, on that day. And, and just that little phrase, on that day, is this really important reference for, for Jewish people. Um, because it, it, within the Old Testament, there's this concept of the day of the Lord. And anytime you see the phrase, on that day, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's referring to this idea of the day of the Lord. The day when God will finally come and sit in judgment over the world. And he will bring all evil to justice, and justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's the quote from the Old Testament. And, and he will vindicate his people, but part of what's going to happen as well is, is that everyone has to stand before the throne of God and give an accounting of how they live their life. And so Jesus is explicitly saying on Judgment Day, it won't be enough that you professed faith in Jesus. It won't even be enough if you performed miracles in his name. In philosophy, we, we would call these things necessary but not sufficient. In other words, you need to profess faith in Jesus. That's a good thing. You should believe that Jesus can perform miracles in you and through you and for you. There's plenty of evidence in Scripture for that. But according to Jesus, it's entirely possible to profess faith in Jesus and even cast out demons in his name, but not be a genuine follower of him. The final, the most important criteria is knowing Jesus. This is what he tells them, right? I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. And so when he goes into this story of the two builders, right, the, the difference between the two people is not what they hear. It isn't what church they attend. It isn't what they believe. It isn't even what they say to people. It's what they do. The one who builds his foundation on the rock is the one who actually does what Jesus teaches. He doesn't just listen and approve and then go about his life as if nothing else has changed. He changes the way that he lives as a result of what he hears. That is what it means to build your house on the rock. It means that your life is actually transformed by your relationship with Jesus. 
And this is the big sticking point for so many of us. Probably the majority of people in our churches in today's day and age have not been transformed in that way. Not because Jesus isn't willing to do it, but because they are unwilling to change. And we should be truly alarmed by the fact that Jesus in these passages is speaking only about the religious community. He isn't standing in front of a crowd of unbelievers who have never heard anything about this God teaching them new things. He's talking to a crowd of faithful Jewish men and women who've got the scriptures memorized, who were in their synagogues every Sabbath. Which means the people on the path to destruction, the people who missed the narrow gate in this story, they're not unbelievers, they're insincere believers. This is a warning for people who are already considering themselves part of the faith, who already believe that they are following their God. We would rather build our houses on the sand. We'd rather hear the words of Jesus and approve of them and then carry on with our lives as if nothing is different. Because see, if we do that, then we're free to take the easy path. And we can comfort ourselves with at least the appearance of holiness. And so these passages, I think they can be really intimidating. Because it, it sounds like Jesus is telling us that being a true disciple is so exceptionally difficult that only a few elites will actually succeed. But if you pay close attention, that's, that's not his message at all. The path is not narrow and difficult because he throws up obstacles in our way or because he makes it difficult. It's not difficult because he demands perfection or elitism or exceptionalism. It's difficult because it demands humility and submission. It's difficult because we make it difficult for ourselves. We, in the modern church especially, we have a tendency to reverse our priorities, and so we prioritize knowledge, and we, we kind of revel in knowledge, and we place great, great emphasis on knowing what the Bible says and on understanding proper theology and doctrine, and we think that if we do these things, everything else will fall into place. And to be perfectly clear, I love theology and doctrine. I love the Bible. I just asked you all to read the whole thing with me last year. I like it quite a bit. I, I, it's the single most important authoritative source of knowledge in the world. It's the primary means by which God speaks to us. And I think theology and doctrine are hugely important. They're vital because they help us understand who God is and how we are to live as his children. And they guide us in every aspect of our decision-making throughout our lives. They're important, but, but, when doctrine and theology and scripture are separated from a deep, intimate, humble, and personal relationship with our Creator and Savior. They become toxic. They become fatal. They become weaponized. And history is full of examples of when that has happened to devastating effects. So much so, I could spend the rest of the year talking about just that. So the most important thing for us, the way that we build our house on the rock, the way we keep ourselves on the narrow, difficult path is not through information. It's through transformation. 
knowing Jesus comes first. And it's in the context of knowing Jesus that doctrine and theology find their place. And this is why I'm actually asking you to read the Bible one chapter at a time right now, why we're starting with the Gospels. Because if the Bible is still the primary means through which God communicates to us on a daily basis, you might need to actually read it from time to time. And you've read the whole thing if you followed along with the reading plan, and that's great. You read these big, long chunks of it all at once. I love doing that. But the fact is, sometimes when we do that, we, we, we see things we've never seen before, and it's great, but we're t- it's like drinking from a fire hose. And you don't always have the ability to let it sink in. So this year we're going deeper. We're going to read it more slowly. And we're starting with the Gospels, with the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection so that we begin the year by slowly familiarizing ourselves with Jesus. One chapter at a time. This is how God speaks to us. This is how we open the door for God to transform us. So in 2023, we're going to build our house on the rock. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.